thank you for that. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, we had Worship United here last night. It was freaking packed. It was cool. We had a good time. Katie gave a testimony. The worship team just knocked it out of the park. It was just a lot of fun. So um, if you missed it, you missed a good night. But uh, we'll do, well, maybe we'll do it again. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I have another one in me right now. Maybe next year. But, um, but we want to begin today by looking at um, talking about love's occupation. In 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to begin in verses 8 through 10 where it says, love never fails. Love never fails. Got to ask yourself if you believe that, right? Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, that's a good idea. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. Love never fails. Never fails. You know, the process of spiritual formation in our lives is like never ending until the day that we die, <laughs> until I'm pushing up daisies or, uh, or, or Jesus comes back before that. I don't know. But it, it is never ending in the sense that we're always being spiritually formed. We operate under this human limitation, don't we? In part, right? On a constant upward scale, a, a learning scale, right? Uh, you know, in reliance with the Holy Spirit, eventually being brought to the, the point of completeness in Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, right? A learning scale of understanding God's deep passionate love for all of us. And people have two fundamental needs, you know, in that process of life or that process of spiritual formation. Firstly, the first and most important need is how they are loved by God. And that is foundational. That's foundational to everything. Everybody needs to know it. And secondly, there, there, there wells up into us a need to express or to show that love, that divine love to others. A heart of overflowing with lo- God's love for others. Romans fifteen thirteen. To only desire to, you know, you know one or the other, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of all skewed, right? Both are, are fundamental for us to thrive in life. To only desire to be loved, right, to only seek to be loved is a prideful endeavor. It creates narcissism and neediness and self-infatuation, right? But also to only give of yourself all the time without drawing on the deep well of God's love for you creates controlling neediness as well. And it's dependent on human limitations. It, It creates angry people, doesn't it? It's... It's an endeavor to find love in all the wrong places as well, if we're honest. And both of those are unhealthy. And we could camp there for quite a while just talking about that, right? I think about a baby born. Maybe mom dies in childbirth and dad is simply absent, right? We all, we've all heard the effects of, of a child's development when they can't bond with mom and dad. 
in the formative years, a child's identity is reinforced and strengthened by being intimately loved and known by mom and dad. And in that relationship, baby learns what? Learns to reciprocate love, to give it back, growing into full maturity, becoming an active, healthy member of society. To be known and to be loved by God is profound. It settles our soul into total peace. The need to be loved and to know it is, is core. It, it, is, it is fundamental to who we are. We can't love well, we can't really love well without being rooted and confirmed in God's love for us first. God is love. That's what the scriptures teach. His love is foundational to human existence. And love is more than a feeling. We know this, right? Feelings may not even need to accompany acts of love. Vinny, do you always love Mary or, or feel? Yeah, yeah. You, you do because you're perfect, right? I can, I can vouch for my wife. I, I'm sure my wife doesn't always feel like loving me, right? <laughs> and I know that's true of Lindley. No, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I just heard you laugh, and it was there. I, I knew you could take it. I know you could take it. But it is. like Love doesn't always need to, you know, feelings don't always need to accompany our acts of love. Love is action. It's a decision. It's a commitment, right? It's a little bit more grown up. It's not driven simply by emotion. That's not it. We operate out of being known and loved by God first. We are secure in Christ, and we overflow that love to others no matter what. No matter what, even to our enemies. Biblical love has at its, you know, its root, it, it has God as its object, its motivator, and its source. Galatians 5.22 teaches us that love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, that when I accept Christ into my heart, into my life, when he saves me, I am filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore I'm filled with the love of Christ. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's directed, it isn't directed towards the things of this world, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, you know, the pride of life, and all that stuff. It's not directed towards those things. The ultimate example of God's love is Jesus who said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Think about how hard that is actually, right? (laughs) That you love one another just as I have loved you. How far did Jesus go, right? He went to the very end of it. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. That's hard stuff. It's hard stuff. Ephesians 2 says to us, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Translation in Jason's words, uh, even when we didn't deserve it, he still made us alive. He still loved us. 
The definitive statement on love according to Paul, which is according to God because it is Scripture, begins earlier in 1 Corinthians 13 where he states that rhetorical ability and preaching and knowledge and mountain-moving faith and charity towards the poor and even martyrdom are nothing without agape love. They are nothing without the love of God driving them, right? And this is the love chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. It's the love chapter. It's the one we read at all our weddings. You probably had it right at your wedding if you're married, right? And we, but we do it disservice if we only relegate it to, in, in, you know, or live it in the light of marriage, right? It is broad. It is all-encompassing of all Christian life, singles and divorced and you know, married or, or widowed or whatever, whatever you are, whoever you are, child or adult, it is encompassing of all Christian life. It's a call to all of us. It's not just how you love your spouse. It's how you love everybody in this room and the people out there, right? 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 4 through 7 lists all these characteristics of this, this deep, powerful love. First, it is long-suffering. Nah, we've lost the ability to be long-suffering in, in this world, haven't we? That long-suffering is a quality which doesn't seek revenge. But it suffers wrong from others. In other words, to act redemptively towards others. Second, love is kind, right? This is, this is a hard one for some of us. Love is kind. It's sometimes translated as gracious or virtuous or useful or manageable or mild or pleasant or benevolent. It is the exact opposite of harsh and hard and sharp and bitter. And those things we hear so much. Thirdly, love isn't envious or covetous. Right? It doesn't jealously desire what it does not possess. Some of you have things that I would like to have. We all can say that, right? Do I jealously desire it? Or am I happy that you have those things? I'm happy. At times I've not been, to be honest. Fourth, love doesn't promote itself, right? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says it's not puffed up. It's not prideful. It doesn't think of itself too greatly, right? Paul says in Philippians 2.3, in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's a hard verse to think about. Do people matter? What Steph just said, do the people around us matter? Fifth, love doesn't behave in unbecoming fashion. Oh, this is a hard one. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 states that believers are to avoid even the appearance of evil. Even if you're not doing something evil, if it looks to be evil by somebody else, then uh, perception is reality and you can't do it. Ephesians 5.3 says, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Oh my goodness. or of any kind of impurity, or, or, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Why are they improper? They're improper because they are not life-giving. They are life-robbing, right? Jesus came to give life, not rob us of it, right? 
They steal life. They steal the freedom that we actually have in Jesus. It's a, it's a weird dichotomy to know that actually obedience to Christ brings more freedom, not less. Sixth, sixth, love doesn't seek its own things, right? It doesn't, you know, seek itself. Paul once sent Timothy to the Philippians and he said, I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. This is a great uh, uh, compliment towards Timothy, right? I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy was a man who could love people well because he was concerned about Jesus in them. Right? Seventh, love isn't easily provoked. It's not easily irritated or exasperated or made angry. For example, when Jesus was hit, He didn't retaliate. He didn't hit back. He didn't even strike back with words. He said, if I've spoken wrongly, (laughs) give evidence about the wrong. But if if, if rightly, why do you hit me? Boy, if I was the guy that hit him, I would have been like, oh, I'm really, I'm sorry I did that. You know what I mean? I'd be like, what came over me? You know, it, it just, it doesn't, you know, it's not easily provoked. Eighth love believes the best about people. Oh, right? (laughs) It thinks no evil of others. Mm. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. I mean, think about it. Don't you have like a little tally about everybody you know? Like, he did this once to me, and I'll never forget that, you know? Like, it's just, it's all in there, right? Love steps beyond that. True, biblical, godly love steps beyond that. Not that it's that simple to do sometimes, but it does step beyond that. Love overlooks insult and wrong, right? We, we bear with people in love. You ever read that verse, bear with, bear with each other in love? Oh, my gosh. That means you overlook a lot of things. You don't attack every little thing. You don't get mad at every little thing. You say, ah, I, I can take that one. I'll take that shot. Big deal, right? We overlook a lot of things. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness or wrongdoing or injustice. But it rejoices in the truth. This is a big one, right? Because God's truth and God's love are absolutely, totally inseparable. They are totally and absolutely inseparable. That's why we say often here at 6 8 feelings aren't facts. Although they may feel like facts sometimes. Like, that feels really good. I want to go do that thing. No, that might not be the best thing. Right? Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. In other words, my heart, my emotions, my wants, my desires can lead me astray. And, I'm, and a mature person says, I, I, I know that about myself. I know that about myself. So we measure all things against the Word of God, against the revealed words of God which are found in your Bible. We measure them against the, 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 the guidance of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We measure them against the, the counsel of other brothers and sisters in our lives, other Christians who are walking with Jesus, not just anybody that calls themselves a Christian, but somebody that's actually walking with Christ. Let me just stop here and say I, I got to go to the American Bible Society's 
presidential something this week. Because my friend, Kurt Thompson, was speaking there. And I, I just love to say that I'm friends with Kurt Thompson because he's like people, he commands thousands of dollars to go speak places, right? They just, they fly him all over the world to speak. He's just, he's an author, he's a psychiatrist, he's just brilliant and all this stuff. And he has not yet figured out after 26 or seven years that I've known him that I'm a total dork and he's wasting his time spending it with me. But he invites me out and he says, hey, let's have coffee. Come listen and we'll have coffee. Just a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful guy. And I'm like, man, I get to have great friends like this. Kurt walks with the Lord so strongly and he speaks such truth into my heart. I just love that. That's the counsel we look for, right? Many of you are like that for me. Some of you I don't know yet. You might be that someday, right? But we don't allow our affinities or our desires to usurp God's truth, do we? we it wouldn't be loving, and it, it would deny people the true freedom that Christ is trying to bring them. Love without truth lies. Truth without love kills. They're inseparable. Or as Timothy Keller puts it, truth without love is imperious self-righteousness. Love without truth is cowardly self-indulgence. I love those quotes, man. Both are selfish, he says. And then Paul concludes that love bears all. That it believes all. That it hopes all. And that it endures all things. Man, it doesn't stop. Right? Love never fails. It never, never, never fails. As Solomon said, many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. Oh, so poetic and beautiful. It's true. Paul uses the, the term, um, the, the bond of unity in Colossians chapter 3. He, had, he admonishes the, the Colossians to put on hearts of compassion and of kindness and of humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness. And he says, above all these things, put on love. Like, bind them all up together. Love ties them all together. It's, it, and it's actually, the, the image he's using there is an image of rods. If you take a, like a stick like this, a chopstick I got from someplace, I think it's a sushi place right over here. You know, if this is compassion without the love of God behind it, I can easily just, right? But if I put all those things together and I bind it together with love, I can't break that. It can actually break things, <laughs> Right? It becomes so powerful, so immovable. So strength is found in loving strongly, not in retribution, not in getting my way, right? Now, to John, love is the test of authentic discipleship. The Jews centered their faith around the confession of the Shema, right? They, they said, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And lo- you shall love your enemy as yourself, or your neighbor as yourself, right? Now, according to John, that was an old command that you have had from the very beginning. But, on the other hand, John was writing a new command at the same time, a new commandment to them at the same time. Because for John, love isn't just a requirement for fellowship to get into the club. I don't just recite the words and suddenly I'm okay, right? 
But love, true love, godly love emanating out of my life is a test of true salvation for John. This is scary stuff. Because we're not going to be perfect at this. He says in 1 John 3.10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. Let me stop right there and just say, sometimes the right thing is to repent. You might do something wrong. This doesn't say that you're not saved just because you do something wrong. But sometimes the right thing is to repent from what I've just done or my bad attitude or whatever it is, right? If we have a a genuine relationship with God, that relationship is made manifest by walking in truth and love with others. It's authentic. It says we, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not have love remains in death. Now listen to this one. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You might be like, well, I didn't kill anybody. Well, you don't have to pull the trigger to kill anybody. You've killed them in your head, right? They can't get anywhere with you. They're dead to you. Anyone who hates that's why Jesus said, don't say, you know, you're, if you say raka, you know, fool, you're in dangers of the fire of hell. How many times have you given somebody the finger on the road? <laughs> right? I mean, this is how serious it gets. The purity of God's heart is where we're driving to. And this is what he's calling us to. And we're in that upward learning scale. Of learning to love like God loves, Right? So he says, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. In other words, if you're living like that, in that, all the time, you've never, ever understood how to love, that's a sign, right? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. And as we've said already, John admonishes believers not to love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus even taught, as we know, to love that all of us as believers are to love our enemies. Although believers are permitted and even commanded to hate evil, we're not to hate the sinner. We don't have that right. We don't have the right to hate anybody. And to insist that in order to accept a person, the Christian must accept sin in that person's life as normative, is unscriptural because it's not good for them. Rather, we are to reprove the sinner, to lead them out of it. So what we find is that loving admonishment of someone living in sin in order to push them towards God's love and God's freedom in their life is actually the best thing for them, even though it might be a little bit uncomfortable for the moment. It's a loving action. It's a loving action. Richard John Newhouse said, where 
orthodoxy, this has become known as the Newhouse Law, where orthodoxy is optional. In other words, we're right and wrong. We're right thinking. We're, 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 where Scripture is, is suddenly taken apart and dismantled and say, oh, we, don't, we don't want that part. We don't want this part. When orthodoxy is optional, orthodoxy will sooner or later be prescribed or prohibited. That's what that means. So where orthodoxy is optional, orthodoxy will sooner or later be proscribed, prohibited. Well, we can do anything we want. We can do anything we want. Just don't say that we can't do it. To make orthodox belief the sort of the the the, the moral, moral right and wrong of of of, of the, the Christian life that God calls us to to make orthodox belief from the scriptures optional is to actually act in unloving ways towards people towards humankind towards our brothers and sisters. It's love divorced from truth, and those two things cannot be separated. And when we do separate them, it is damaging. When we have, an orthodoxy goes away and we just have this feeling of love and, well, accept everything, accept everything, accept everything. It's no longer loving. It's damaging. It's hurtful. We were all made to be loved by God. We're all made to be loved, right? Precisely because God himself is love, right? And this, and this loving God is also a creator God and somehow, you know, uh, you know, he created, everything he created is both a result of his love and somehow, you know, made in order to be able to know his affection. He longs to show it to you, right? Everything in this universe must run in the flow of God's created order or suffer a painful splintering as a result, a breaking apart. Let's take just a couple minutes, and, and, and let's look at two people who knew deeply the father's love and were able to share it in very real ways. Firstly, we want to look at Joseph, uh, his father's favorite son. If you remember the story that began in Genesis 37, uh, you remember the, the Joseph and the coat of many colors. You know, his father gave him this coat, and he wore it around the house, or he wore it out in the fields. And, you know, wearing that coat brought the absolute ire and jealousy and hatred of his brothers upon Joseph. They hated him for it, hated him. And so they concocted this plan to be rid of him. And yet instead of killing him, they threw him in a well at first and then they sold him to a band of nomads headed to Egypt. You know, they got a little money out of it. Why not, right? And then they went home and they told their father that he had been eaten or killed by a wild animal. Long story short, Joseph's in Egypt and after a lot of suffering, he becomes, he rises to become a great ruler in Egypt. Yet his family doesn't know anything about this. But when famine hits the land, Joseph's brothers, his whole family, you know, makes their way to Egypt just to survive. And upon arrival, they, they, uh, they're met by Joseph, but they don't recognize him. It's been too long, and he was young and earlier, and they, he's grown up, I guess, or whatever. But, but he recognizes them. It's hard to miss all your brothers. You know, he had a big family and all this stuff. And, and Joseph, at that time, would have been very justified in the world's eyes. Nobody would have blamed him if he chucked them all in the prison and threw away the key, or if he killed them. He had the power to do it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Acting in selfless love, he showers them with food and with land and a new life. They're reborn. 
showing them total and absolute compassion. He gave them the love that they never showed him. Think on how Joseph reflected the principles found in 1 Corinthians 13, right? His own brothers threw him in a well and then sold him into slavery. But his attitude, his attitude was that what had happened was to God's glory. He says to them, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry even with yourselves. Like, don't feel guilty about this, guys. Don't even be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. See how he views this? For two years now, there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God himself. What character, what fortitude this guy shows, you know, in this act of love when no one would have blamed him if he had just treated them in ill ways, right? I want you to think. Think now, right now, on the people that have done you wrong. The people that have hurt your feelings or done pretty horrific things to you, right? I know some of your stories. Some of your stories are horrific, Some of yours, not so horrific, but still hurtful, right? But how often do we react out of some humanistic sense of justice and retribution when in our time of need, when we were still dead in our transgressions and sin, God saved us in Christ despite our very much deserving otherwise? That's gospel truth, baby. Can I get an amen on that one? Amen, right? By the way, I like, feedback is nice. I love to hear that. But. Um, you know, in the past weeks, we've, we've been speaking of living for God's glory and living uh, out God's mission in this world. And it's an important concept. We, we want to be a church that is fully given over to holiness and purity, pursuing truth, pursuing love, pursuing God's glory, kingdom-minded people in all ways, applying scripture well, not living in duplicity of lifestyle and attitude while we claim Jesus as our own. We want to live in obedience to Jesus' teaching and commands. We want to follow Jesus. That's our vision statement, right? To live as Jesus did in word and deed, you know, uh, awakening others in their own spiritual journey with him to live as Jesus did, right? To be the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in the eastern main line all around us right here and beyond, out into Syria, out into Indonesia, out into Lebanon, you know, all these places. By the way, I'm, we're going to be uh, seeing if people want to go on some trips this year to Lebanon. Amen. You want to go to Lebanon? Beirut, baby. Anyway, I got off a phone call. I was pretty excited about it this week. Um, I'll tell you more about that some other time. But, but all of that, all of that takes 100% devotion to Jesus and his call. Now, you may not feel 100% devoted. Feelings aren't facts. But it's something to think about. God's moving. I think God is moving in our church. Last night was, was proof of that. It's, he's bringing joyous conviction, right? Allowing people to belong before they believe. Come as you are, but leave transformed, please. Right? 
Go out that door being changed by Christ. Since there's no freedom without repentance, there's no freedom without transformation in Christ, right? Be praying that all of this continues. It's exciting for me since we want to be the absolute most useful uh, church in the hands and uh, being the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in this world. We really do. Pray he continues to lead us to reflect Christ in all that we are. Pray against things like confusion and fear and indifference and pride and unforgiveness and shame and duplicity. Pray against those things. They're not, they're not worthy of us. They're not. We want freedom to focus everything that we are on Christ. Everything that we are on Christ. And part of that, a big part of that, is to live lives of love. True love. Which means we too must act in forgiving ways towards others who have done us great or small harm. Realizing that God will do something even through our painful stories. He will. He'll even use your pain. So, would you take a moment and just go into a prayerful posture with me? I want you to close your eyes. And I want to lead you through a few moments of just prayerful thoughts. I want you to take just a moment right now with your eyes closed, just you and Jesus, just you, the Holy Spirit, just you and God the Father. And I want you to bring to mind those people that have wronged you, those people that have hurt you, large or small. you have them in mind, I I want you to right now imagine yourself walking up to the foot of the cross where Christ is bleeding and breathing and grasping for breath. And I want you to lay those people down right in front of the cross as a sacrifice to God. Lay your pain down. Lay your desire for revenge at the foot of the cross. we reside in bitterness, if we reside in anger and unforgiveness, we reside outside of the love of God. He can't penetrate us. We want to reflect Jesus even to our enemies, towards those that have caused us pain. Let's allow Jesus to heal our souls right now. Let's allow him to bring forgiveness and love back into our lives in order to be free to reflect his love to the world. So still still in that posture of prayer, I'd like you to just silently say to yourself, you don't even need to say this out loud, silently say to yourself, Lord, Lord Jesus, although my feelings say otherwise, although my emotions want to run the other way, I want to reflect you in my pain. So therefore, I choose, I make a cognitive decision. I choose to forgive this person who's hurt me. And I ask that eventually, 
my emotions and my feelings would follow suit. Bring life back to my heart in this area. Amen. You know, in doing that, you reflect Jesus, who, like Joseph, also knew love really well, right? Jesus was also a favorite son. He also had his father's love. He was also rejected by his own brothers. He was also beaten. And instead of being just left for dead or sold off to traitors, he was taken away and he was killed, brutally killed for the wrongdoing of all the world. God's justice for all the sin of the world poured out on his own son. And like Jesus, uh, or like Joseph, Jesus can say even more so that that happened according to the Father's will. He even prayed about it right before he went to the cross. He sweat blood about it. If this could pass, but your will be done. Right? And he can say that it was done in order that many would be saved during this great spiritual drought of humankind. He can say that since death couldn't hold him. It's a crazy story. Death couldn't hold him. After he was raised up, he came back to the very people that rejected him. (laughs) Right? Instead of looking for retribution or payment, he came back and said peace in John 20, 19 to the very guys that have fled him in his greatest hour of need, turned their back on him. He said peace to you guys. And if you remember on the cross, he did something absolutely phenomenal. He said as he hung there grasping for breath, do you know what happens when you're hanging on a cross? You can't breathe. Your heart turns to wax. You just, you can't suck in breath. It's painful. It's one of the worst ways to die. And he said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. The, The very guy nailing that nail into my feet doesn't know what he's doing. Forgive him. That's freaking crazy. That's crazy love, right? So we have that. And now we can say about those people that have harmed us, Father, forgive my mother who abandoned me. She didn't really know what she was doing. Father, forgive my uncle for molesting me. Oh, he he really didn't know what he was doing. Father, forgive all those around me with racist ideology. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive my son for spurning all my direction and squandering his education and, and his opportunities. He didn't know what he was doing. Father, forgive my wife for cheating on me. Father, forgive my husband for his porn addiction. He didn't really know what he was doing. And they don't, do they? They don't. They're not cognizant of the damage that they're inflicting on you or themselves or others. They're driven by desire. They're driven by emotion. They're driven by just something internally gross. 
They're living outside of the love of Christ. Even if they are Christians and they are doing this, right in that moment, they are not exhibiting the love of Christ, right? They're not free. They are captive to sin. They are bound. They are unsatisfied. They are lost. And that, my friends, is truth. Governed by the love and the justice of the cross. Truth bringing peace and freedom to our troubled souls and strengthens us to be agents of God's gospel change in the world, in the hand, being useful in his hands all across the world. And just like Joseph from a well or a prison or Jesus from a tomb, everyone who awakens to the Father's love in them can expect the power of the resurrection to be at work in them. Because love never fails. It never, 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 never fails. We have two fundamental needs. To know that we are loved by God in Christ, bringing absolute security to our souls. And to express that love, to pour that love out to others, to reflect the heart of God for what's already been done for us. Living in love is to live in truth and freedom and strength and the power of the Holy Spirit, right? It makes us able to seek God's glory through living out of God's mission. It enables us to follow Jesus, to live as Jesus did, and to manifest Jesus to everybody around us. I just want to leave you with one last thing today, a, a verse that the national director, Phil Strout, uh, got for all of the vineyard as he was praying for the whole movement. And he's going to be sending some stuff out about this soon. Um, but it's Jeremiah 6.16, and it says, This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls which is really what we're saying today. You may be at a crossroads. Look. Look. Ask for that old ancient path of love. Ask for that old ancient path of truth. Ask for the good way. And then walk in it to find rest for your soul. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are present, that you are with us, that you love us, that you care for us, that your love goes to the very end of it all. That you were willing to bleed and die out, to to gasp and suffer in heat and the stinging pain of death for all of us. That your love went that far and that you overcame all of that stuff that was holding us back. The sin and the death in our lives that you gave us the power to live in your love. And we really want to do that well. And we're going to make mistakes and we're going to trip and we're going to stumble And we know that your grace covers that. But we don't want to use your grace as an excuse. We want to walk as strongly as we can in this because it is important. 